Daniel, though, remains a devout Jew throughout it all, a real patriot. It might be a stretch, but we could even make a case for the old Houston Oilers, since we're going to talk a lot about the nation of Greece. And there's an unnamed beast described as dreadful and terrible. Sounds to me like the Atlanta Falcons, no doubt about it. (laughs) And to keep with the National Football League theme, we also have a horn. We're told with eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. That's got to be John Madden, no doubt about it. Maybe Chris Berman, one of those television commentators. And by the way, tonight's study will be just a little less than 50 minutes. You, you might call it a 49er. The book of Daniel is divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 6 are the narrative of Daniel's life, while chapters 7 through 12 are four visions of the future that God gives to Daniel. The most sweeping and comprehensive of these visions is chapter 7. It was given to Daniel in 533 B.C. And it really outlines the far distant future. Chapters 8 through 12 fill in the details described in chapter 7. The Jewish scribes who copied the Old Testament called Daniel chapter 7 the greatest chapter in the Scripture. And you'll see why in a minute. It depicts the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms centuries in advance. If you've ever doubted the sovereignty of God over world events or His ability to know the end from the beginning, tonight's chapters will silence your doubts. And so, let's kick off tonight's study here in chapter 7. Rather than National Football League teams, what we have in chapter 7 is a league of nations. Daniel is given a glimpse at the future. He's shown 2,500 years of Gentile world domination. The chapter begins with Daniel seeing four beasts rising out of the sea. Now throughout scripture, we know that the sea is symbolic for lost humanity. Isaiah 57 verse 20 tells us, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire. You know, we still use the same imagery whenever we use the expression, the sea of humanity. In verses 2 and 3, we see God's sovereignty stirring up the nations, manipulating world events to bring about a succession of Gentile kings who will rule the world. Each of these beasts Daniel sees represents one of four empires that have ruled the world from Daniel's time up until today. The lion is Babylon. The bear is the Medo-Persian Empire. The leopard is Greece. And the fourth dreadful and terrible beast is Rome. It's interesting, these four beasts and these four kingdoms are the same succession of nations that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream back in chapter 2, if you remember from last week. And there's a great chart there in your study guide that puts Nebuchadnezzar's vision up alongside Daniel chapter 7 and shows you the similarities. There is, though, a difference between the two visions. Nebuchadnezzar saw the kingdoms of this world from man's point of view. And they looked to him like a metallic, polished, 
shiny, beautiful image, whereas God depicts human empires and government as animals, as bestial and barbaric, as ravage and savage. That's God's analysis of human government, something that frightens and consumes and destroys. What a contrast. Apparently God knows a little bit about human nature. Now in light of history, it is amazing the exacting detail that Daniel ascribes to each of these animals and their respective kingdoms. His vision had to have come from God, as you'll see. The lion, or Babylon, has eagle's wings. And the archaeologists will point out the famed Ishtar gates, the entranceway to ancient Babylon. They've been unearthed and undiscovered. And guess what? They are adorned with winged lions. This was a symbol of the Babylonian Empire. Of course, the wings are plucked off in Daniel's vision, and the flying lion is made to stand like a man. The lion is given a man's heart. It all speaks of what we talked about last week, God's humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4. God literally drove Nebuchadnezzar to his knees. The lion met the lion tamer, and God humbled the great King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon ruled the world for 70 years from 605 to 536 B.C. The next animal or beast that Daniel sees is the bear or the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's raised up on one side. Eventually, the Persians will dominate their alliance with the Medes. Notice, too, the bear has three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And the Persians conquered three kingdoms in order to build their empire. Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. And notice we're told they devour much flesh. In battle, the Persians were slow and methodical and plotting, just like a bear. They waged these massive battles with millions of men. And the Medes and the Persians, they didn't mind losing a few men, even thousands and thousands of men, in order to achieve their goals. They relied on brute force Rather than surprise in strategy, they all were the perfect picture of a plotting bear. Medo-Persian ruled the world for 205 years from 536 to 331 B.C. In contrast to the Medo-Persians, the Greeks were like a winged leopard, which is the next beast that Daniel sees. They were speedy. They relied on strategy and skill in, in warfare. And through the cunning and courage of Alexander the Great, the Greeks conquered the world in less than ten years. The winged leopard also had four heads, which describes Alexander's succession. His generals later carved up his empire into four regions. The Greeks ruled the world for 185 years from 331 to 146 B.C. The fourth beast is described in verse 7. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, I said earlier that this dreadful and terrible beast had to have been the Atlanta Falcons, but it can't be because it's been a long, long time since the Falcons trampled anybody. 
You could refer to this beast, though, maybe as the Steelers. They've got iron teeth. A blacksmith for a dentist. Actually, this fourth beast was Rome. The Romans were menacing and mighty. They ruled the world from England to Egypt, from the Atlantic to the Euphrates. And they ruled the world for over 600 years, from 146 B.C. to 476 A.D., longer than the three preceding empires combined. Rome brought the whole world under its feet. Notice, too, Rome is envisioned as this dreadful beast who breaks in pieces, who devours, who tramples, and the Romans were certainly famous for their cruelty. The Romans invented crucifixion. Their gladiators entertained the nobles of Rome with blood and death and gore. Rome did indeed trample and devour. The ruthlessness of Rome has become legendary. Now, in a sense, this fourth beast represents ancient Rome. But in another sense, it also looks to a future Rome. Understand two aspects of Bible prophecy. Two characteristics. First, Bible prophecy usually involves a dual or double fulfillment. Many prophecies actually speak of both an immediate and a future event of similar detail, both at the same time. Some prophecies uh, actually deal with the long term and the short term in, in one swoop, just sort of combining them together. There's also a second characteristic of Bible prophecy, and that is that there are often hidden gaps of time actually embedded in the prophecy. Some prophecies are like looking at a mountain range from miles away. There might be several peaks in that mountain range that are actually separated by huge valleys. But when you look at it from a distance, you don't see those valleys. All you see is what you think is just one single peak. These are characteristics of Bible prophecy. And this is the case with the prophecy here in Daniel chapter 7. Yes, this fourth beast is the old Roman Empire. But according to Daniel's vision, it's during the reign of this dreadful and terrible beast that the kingdoms of man are destroyed. And God establishes His kingdom on the earth. And that obviously didn't happen during the days of ancient Rome. That's why Bible students see in this fourth beast a last day's revival of the old Roman Empire. Nebuchadnezzar also saw a last day's kingdom. The image that he saw had feet that had clay. The feet of the image were clay mixed with iron. Iron representing Rome, clay representing the rest of humanity. And it was in Nebuchadnezzar's vision at the point of this fifth world governing empire, at the point of the feet or the revived Roman Empire, that the stone, which represented the Messiah, struck the image at the feet. The kingdoms of man crumbled and God's kingdom rose in its place. And so it's at the point of this last world governing empire, this Roman revival, that God will return and establish his kingdom. You remember also in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the image had ten toes. Here the beast has ten horns. And there's no reason to guess at this. Verse 24 says that the ten horns are ten kings. And so the revived Roman Empire of the last days will take the form of a ten-nation confederacy. In verse 8, 
Daniel sees a little horn rising up amidst these ten horns. The little horn has the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. He uproots three of the ten horns, leaving seven. And most Bible students identify this little horn with the blabber mouth as none other as the Antichrist. He is the one who grabs the reins of this last world-governing empire, this revival of ancient Rome. Verses 21 and 25 predict a second holocaust against the Jews. Daniel says this little horn, a Roman ruler, will make war with the saints and prevail against them for a time and times and half a time, which was another way of saying three and a half years. During the last half of the seven-year Great Tribulation, during the last three and a half years of that period, the Antichrist will turn on the Jews and try to destroy them. Notice verse 21 says that the Antichrist will prevail against the saints. But you remember what Jesus promised us. In Matthew 16, verse 18, he told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And this is why I believe that the saints who appear in the Great Tribulation are the Jews, not believers in Jesus. The Antichrist will wreak havoc on the earth, but you and I are going to be with the Lord in heaven during that period of time. We'll get raptured before that terrible time of judgment takes place. I believe that one of the most amazing developments of the last 50 years has been the reunification of the continent of Europe. Not since the days of Rome has Europe been under one banner, not until today. The emergence of the European community with its common currency, its unified goals, its open borders is no less than a modern miracle. The European community began in 1957 with the Treaty of Rome, incidentally. And for the last 44 years, it has continued to push for one European even global government. Slowly, walls of national sovereignty are falling all over Europe, and it will continue to do so as the days approach. You know, the only question becomes in Europe these days is who will emerge as the leader of this unified United States of Europe? Martin Garber, a former East German official, commented after the collapse of communism, power is lying on the ground, he said, waiting for somebody to pick it up. Former EEC official Henry Speck spoke, of, spoke for many Europeans when he made the comment, we don't want another committee. We want a man of stature to hold the allegiance of the people. Send us a man, whether he be God or a devil. Send him. How prophetic are those words? The nations of this new united Europe are so desperate for a leader that the people are set up to embrace Satan's last day's villain, the Antichrist, this little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Now after watching these four beasts rise out of the sea, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. I like that name for God, the Ancient of Days. He is the eternal God. The phrase ancient of days literally means days without beginning. God is from eternity past to eternity future. He has always been. He always will be. 
he sees the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne. Just as the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, saw the Almighty God sitting on His throne chariot, the wheels spinning, the whole rig looks like a fiery flame, so does Daniel see in chapter 7 the throne of God. He also sees an innumerable multitude surrounding the throne. The books are open. Judgment is rendered. And this terrible and dreadful beast is finally destroyed. Verses 13 and 14 are incredible. Daniel sees one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Isn't that exactly how Jesus said He would return? With the clouds? He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Who can that be other than our Lord Jesus Christ? Daniel's vision in chapter 8 was given to him two years after the one in chapter 7. And in this vision, Daniel gets transported 375 miles eastward from Babylon to Shushan, which was the birthplace of the Medo-Persian Empire, the future seat of the Persian power. This time, Daniel sees two beasts, two animals, not four. He sees a ram, and he sees a male goat. And in this vision, the focus is narrowed, and and the two parts of what he had seen previously are examined close up and specifically. And there's no need to guess the identities of the ram and of the male goat. For toward the end of the chapter, the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel... And he interprets the vision. And in verse 20, he tells us that the ram with the two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire. Why two horns? Because the empire was an alliance between two groups of people, the Medes and the Persians. History tells us that the Persian king actually wore a crown shaped like a ram's head. Verse 21 tells us the identity of the male goat and the notable horn between his eyes. The goat is Greece. Its early capital, incidentally, was named Aegea, which means the goat city. You've heard of the Aegean Sea. It's the sea of goats, literally, is what it means. And the large horn, we're told, is its first king, the famous Alexander the Great. Greece came out of the west. And according to verse 5, they came across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Though in his early 20s, Alexander the Great was a brilliant strategist. He could move his troops at awesome speed. When he came against the Persians, he was outnumbered 12 to 1. But he overcame them through skill and through speed and through strategy. It's interesting, when Alexander conquered Jerusalem, In 333 B.C., Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the Greek general was shown Daniel chapter 8. And he understood the passage to refer to himself. In less than a decade, Alexander ruled the whole civilized world. Legend has it, at the end of his triumph, he cried, since there were no more worlds to conquer. Verse 8 records the death of Alexander the Great. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up 
toward the four winds of heaven. Alexander died in 323 B.C. at the age of 33, at the very pinnacle of his career, when the horn was still strong. Legend has it that he got sick after a bout of heavy drinking. The general that mastered the world couldn't master a bottle. Supposedly, he was asked on his deathbed who would succeed him. And he answered, give it to the strongest. Which set off a bloody struggle. Eventually, his four generals divided the empire into four regions. And Daniel predicted that. Here in verse 8, the four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. General Lycomachus ruled over Asia Minor. Seleucus reigned over Syria, and Ptolemy took over the land of Egypt. And for the next 250 years, Israel finds herself between two rival and warring Greek dynasties, the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south. Verse 9 tells us, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which of course is Israel. Here we have another little horn, but understand this little horn is different from the one we saw in chapter 7. Remember the little horn in chapter 7 is a Roman king. This one is a Greek king. There are two different people here in mind. This little horn grows out of the Syrian division of the Greek Empire. The man Daniel refers to here in chapter 8 was the eighth ruler in the Seleucid dynasty of kings. His name was Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. But he took the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. You see, Antiochus was arrogant. He was prideful. He thought he was a god. He wanted to be worshipped as a god. The Jews, though, had a different impression of him. They called him not Epiphanes, but Epimenes, which means madman. You see, Antiochus hated the Jews. His goal was to spread Greek custom and language and religion throughout the world. But when the Jews resisted his efforts, he grew angry. He eventually came to the temple in Jerusalem and he stopped the sacrifices. And on December the 15th, 168 B.C., Antiochus committed the ultimate blasphemy. He desecrated the holy place by offering a pig on the bronze altar, an unclean animal. Then he erected in the Holy of Holies in the temple a statue of the Greek idol Zeus. Verse 13 refers to the blasphemous act as the transgression or abomination of desolation. It was the sin that would bring God's judgment upon Antiochus and the Greeks. Antiochus's blasphemies so infuriated the Jews that one particular priest, a man by the name of Mattathias, stood up against the Greek king. In fact, he had a son 
His son's name was Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, as he was called. And this Judas Maccabeus led a campaign of guerrilla warfare against Antiochus and his troops. It was called the Maccabean Revolt. Eventually, the Jews prevailed, and they took back their city of Jerusalem and their temple. And on December the 25th, 165 B.C., the temple was cleansed from the blasphemies and the atrocities done to it by Antiochus. 1105 days after it had been defiled. Verse 13 mentions a period of 2300 days between the defiling of the temple and its cleansing. What that time frame represents, I'm not sure history has yet to reveal to us. But at the temple's cleansing, something interesting took place. The priests went to light the golden menorah, the lampstand within the temple. The ceremony to purify the temple would take eight days, but they only had enough oil to burn for 24 hours. But God worked a miracle, and the oil lasted the whole eight days. And ever since, Jews the world over at that time of the year have celebrated the miracle in the temple with what they call the Festival of Lights, or we call Hanukkah. That's where that feast and celebration comes from. Now, when Gabriel interprets the vision to Daniel, he tells him twice that the vision refers to the time of the end. What's interesting about this detail is that the reign of Antiochus ended nothing. Gabriel says twice more that it's for the latter time. And certainly Antiochus, though later than Daniel, he still wasn't living in the latter times. And I believe verses 23 through 26 go beyond Antiochus. And they speak of his typological counterpart, the Antichrist. This is the future ruler who shall arise, we're told, having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. He's the one who will rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human hand. Chapter 9 occurs under the reign of the Medes and Persians. The year is 535 B.C., and 70 years have now passed since the Jews were taken to Babylon. Now, Daniel, he's been studying his Bible. And he's been reading in Jeremiah. In fact, he's been reading in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, where the prophet Jeremiah had predicted that the Jews would remain in Babylon for 70 years. Oh, 70 years? Wait a minute, let me look at my count. Whoa, whoa, we're almost, we're almost, almost been here 70 years. And he starts thinking. Daniel realizes that the time is about up, that the sentence has been served. But there's still some unfinished business. The people still owe God an apology. He knows it'll do no one any good to return to the land without returning with a repentant heart. And in the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9, he prays one of the most heartfelt prayers of repentance in all the Scripture. This, what we're about to read, is what it means to have a broken and contrite heart. And if you're seeking God's forgiveness tonight, I encourage you to model Daniel's prayer. It's powerful. In verse 4, 
Daniel calls God great and awesome. Which is what requires his confession. That God is so great and awesome. But God is also, Daniel says, merciful and faithful. And this is what inspires his confession. Because he knows that God will forgive him. You see, God's holiness is what secures my debt to ask for forgiveness. But it's God's mercy that causes me to trust Him for that forgiveness. Verse 5 says, We have sinned. He comes clean. There's no cover-up here. In verses 8 and 9, Daniel says, Shame belongs to us. But mercy and forgiveness belongs to God. It reminds me of the fireman who was doing a little course for the first graders. And he was explaining to the class what they are supposed to do in case of a fire. And he says, first, you go to the door. You put your hands up on the door. You feel how hot it is. Second, you drop to your knees. And then he says, do any of you boys and girls know why you drop to your knees? And that's when one little boy said, sure, to ask God to get you out of the mess you're in. Hey, maybe the mess you're in tonight is the direct result of your sin and your stubbornness. And you need to drop to your knees and ask God to get you out of this mess. In verse 17, Daniel asks God to cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. He's looking forward to the Jews' return to their homeland, to the rebuilding of their temple to the restoration of their city. In other words, he's praying for a new start. And did you know that's what you can do tonight? No matter what you've done, no matter how your temple is in ruins, no matter the devastation that's happened to your city, you can pray and you can ask God to bless you with a brand new start. I love how Daniel bases his prayer. Verse 18, he says, We do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. If you get nothing else out of tonight's study, I hope you catch that. His appeal, his prayer, is not based on his own merit, but on God's wonderful mercy. Never go to God and say, Oh God, I've done this, I've done that. God, You owe me an answer to this prayer. Don't ever do that. God doesn't owe you squat. We need to understand that God hears our prayers and He chooses to bless us not because of us, but in spite of us. It's because of His mercy. It's because of His grace. Always come to God on the basis of His mercy, not your merit. And notice the exclamation points in verse 19. There are three of them. I love this. He says, Oh Lord, hear! Oh Lord, forgive! Oh Lord, listen and act! Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Notice Daniel didn't just say prayers. Sometimes we tell our kids, Okay, boys and girls, it's time to say our prayers. Don't don't teach your kids to say prayers. Teach your kids to pray prayers put their heart into it. Not just mumble words, but pray from their heart. Daniel's prayer is a passionate plea. It's been said the prayer God answers comes not from the roof of your mouth, but from the root of your heart. 
We learn many things from Daniel's prayer, but one thing we learn is always put an exclamation point in your prayer. Now, Daniel's focus is the future. What will happen to the Hebrews who return to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and their temple? He's asked God to bless His people and to shine His face upon them. He desires their future to be as bright as their past. When suddenly, in the midst of his prayer, the angel Gabriel arrives from God to reveal to Daniel a vision of Israel's future. And in verses 24 to 27, we have a passage of Scripture known as Daniel's 70 weeks. It is one of the most precise and amazing prophecies in all the Scripture. The vision of Daniel's 70 weeks provides the foundation and the framework for understanding all the other biblical prophecies that point to the end of time. In verse 24, Gabriel begins, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Gabriel is looking now at God's daytimer. He's up in heaven. He's looking at God's organizer. And he sees that there are 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years or 490 years. They're blocked off on God's calendar for the future of Daniel's people Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem. And during this 490 year period, six promises will be fulfilled. First, to finish the transgression. Literally, to crush the serpent. Satan is the one who began with this sin. He's the one that started the ball rolling. And God promises to end Satan's revolt, to finish the transgression. Secondly, He promises to make an end of sins, to corral the sinner, because we've certainly joined in Satan's revolt, haven't we? Sin needs to be stamped out. He promises to do so. He says, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to complete the sinner's pardon, to establish a way where sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. What a need. To bring in everlasting righteousness. In other words, to crown the Savior. To see to it that the earth is finally governed in justice and truth and righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. To confirm the Scriptures. To fulfill the promises. And finally, to anoint the most holy or to cleanse the sanctuary or the temple. And when you look at those six promises, we're sitting 2,500 years after Daniel prophesied. How many of them have been fulfilled? In my reckoning, only one. Jesus on the cross made reconciliation for iniquity. But other than that, there's still five promises here yet to be fulfilled. Now look closely at this prophecy. Its starting point is the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that that decree was issued by the Persian king Artaxerxes on March the 14th, 445 B.C. Verse 25 says that the command, that from the command until Messiah the Prince, there will be 69 weeks or 483 years 
or 173,880 days, if you want to be exact. And so the, the prophecy begins at the command to rebuild the temple, March 14, 445 B.C. From that point, 173,880 days into the future, Daniel says you'll see Messiah, the Prince. That's an amazing prophecy. Now keep in mind, Daniel is living in Babylon, which means that his calendar was based on a 360-day year, so we have to do some conversion. Consider, too, 116 leap years and the fact that there's no year zero, that you jump from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Then start with March the 14th, 445 B.C., count 173,880 days, and you arrive at April the 6th, 32 A.D. Incredibly, that was the very day that Jesus made his triumphant entry down the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate into the city of Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday. We'll celebrate it next week. It was the only public demonstration that Jesus ever orchestrated and he did it to prove to the people that he was fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel. He was presenting himself as Messiah the Prince to the nation Israel in accordance with Daniel's prophecy. I said earlier that a characteristic of prophecy are gaps of time embedded in those prophecies. And in Daniel chapter 9, we find one of these gaps of an unspecified period of time. Notice the 69th week ends when Messiah the Prince appears. But verse 26 mentions two events that occur after the 69th week, but before the 70th week, implying a gap of time. First of all, we're told Messiah is to be cut off or to die a violent death. Jesus, of course, four days later was crucified. The second thing that happens in this interval of time is that the city of Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, which took place... 38 years later, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So we know this interval between the 69th week and the 70th week was at least 38 years. Actually, I believe we're still in that interval of time, that gap of time between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. 490 years are determined for God to fulfill the six promises in verse 24. 483 years have already elapsed, a final seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation remains where God will complete those other five promises where He'll punish the wicked, where He'll purify the Jews, when He'll put an end to sin, when He'll establish His kingdom in Israel. That interval of time is the time when God has reached out to the Gentiles. You see, the 70 weeks of Daniel are determined on the Jews. And so God put a pause. He stopped the clock so that He could then turn to you and me, to those of us who are Gentiles, and could invite us into God's kingdom. But once that last Gentile is saved, I believe the clock will start again. And the 70th week of Daniel will begin. And according to verse 27, we're told 
What sets it off? What begins this final seven-year period? The king of this revived Roman Empire, or the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with God's people Israel. Some sort of peace treaty, some sort of peace process or negotiation will take place where the Antichrist will sign a covenant with the nation Israel that will begin Daniel's final week, that final seven-year period of time. In the middle of that week, we're told, at the three-and-a-half-year juncture, we're told that the Antichrist will pull an Antiochus. He'll put an end to the temple sacrifices and offerings. He'll erect an image of himself, an image of the beast there in the temple. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus calls this future event the abomination of desolation. And he uses the very same terminology that Daniel uses here in chapter 9 and was used of Antiochus's dastardly deed back in chapter 8, verse 13. It's interesting that in this one verse, verse 27, Daniel makes five important assumptions about the last days, and all of them are coming true in our day. That's no coincidence. First, this prophecy assumes, verse 27 assumes, that Israel will be back in the land. That's come about in the last 75 years. On May the 15th, 1948, Israel became a nation again, a landmark, watershed day. It's amazing, after 2,000 years of being a scattered people, for them to come back to the land and become a nation again is a modern-day miracle. The second assumption here is that their temple will be rebuilt. In order for him to end the sacrifices, you've got to have sacrifices, and in order to have sacrifices, you've got to have a temple. And it is amazing strong movement that exists today in Israel for the rebuilding of their temple. Every time we go to Israel, we visit a place called the Temple Institute right there in Jerusalem that is already involved, the people there are already involved in making the implements, making the shovels and the saucers and the bowls that will be used in the new temple when it's built. It's already being prepared. It's already being uh, worked out ahead of time. The third assumption here is that the Roman Empire will be revived, and we see that taking place today in Europe. The fourth thing we see is that out of that Roman Empire will rise a single powerful ruler, and the fifth assumption here is that that leader will negotiate a treaty with Israel. Five interesting assumptions. I wish we could dwell on them more. Now Daniel longed for the day when he could see this whole package of God's promises fulfilled. An end of sin. Everlasting righteousness. With all his heart he wanted to see these blessings. But Daniel also knew that it would take time. That it would take 490 years. And like most of us, Daniel had a problem with patience. He's like the guy who prayed, Lord, I want patience and I want it right now. He moans in chapter 10, verse 1, the message was true, but the appointed time was long. How many times have you ever said that? Oh Lord, the message is true, I know it, but the appointed time is so long. 
That's why he moans and mourns for three weeks. He fasts, he prays, he's bummed with the weight. But at the end of these 21 days, a man appears to Daniel. He's obviously an angel. He He wears a belt of gold. He has a face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes are like torches of fire. His arms and feet like polished brass. Quite a dude. Note the effect this vision has on Daniel. Look in verse 9. He says, While I heard the sound of his words, I was in deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Isn't it interesting? Daniel doesn't blink. He doesn't even breathe hard at the thought of spending a night in the lion's den. But suddenly a messenger from God shows up and he turns into jello. He faints. Most of us would have fainted at the thought of the lions and we probably would have ho-hummed God's messenger. But it proves Daniel had a good handle on what to fear and what not to fear. You and I need to get a good handle on what to fear and what not to fear. In verse 10, the angel touches a trembling Daniel and tells him to rise to his feet. He has nothing to fear, for God has sent him to strengthen Daniel. You remember now, Daniel has been fasting and praying for three weeks. But according to verse 12, God heard his prayer the very first day. So why the delay in the answer? And the angel tells us that in verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of of Persia. Now obviously, this angel is not talking about Cyrus, the human king of Persia. A human king would have been no match for an angelic creature. We've been studying the Bible a while now, and we have seen episodes, examples, where one angel was able to wipe out an entire army. Apparently, this prince of Persia was a demon dispatched by the devil with jurisdiction over the pagan nation of Persia. When God's messenger came to Daniel, he was confronted by this prince of Persia. He struggled with him. He had difficulty overcoming him, so he called for reinforcements. An angelic slugfest was taking place over God's message to Daniel. And on the 21st day, with the help of Michael, the archangel, the good guys prevailed. They finally kicked the fanny of that prince of Persia and made it through and overcome the obstacle. We don't see it, but I believe that right now there are spiritual forces slugging it out in this room. There are spiritual confrontations taking place over you and over me. There are angels and demons wrestling for our attention. There are demons trying to thwart and distract your attention to God's Word. There are angels wanting to communicate God's truth and comfort to your heart. We are involved in a spiritual battle. It's real. It's raging all around us. And here's the provocative point. 
The spiritual battle lasted 21 days. The same amount of time that Daniel had spent praying. We're not told here, but there are other passages that make a connection between prayer and spiritual breakthroughs. And here is the question. If Daniel had stopped praying on day 3 or on day 20, would the angel have broke free and arrived on day 21? We're not told, but perhaps not. We do know this. Prayer is a powerful key to spiritual warfare. We need to pray. We can bind the enemy. We can loose, destroy, and cast down strongholds through the power of prayer. And we need to be diligent in our prayer. God's messenger tells Daniel in verse 14 that he's come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And then he goes on to touch and strengthen a feeble Daniel. And this sets up Daniel for the last two visions in chapters 11 and 12. Now when I was 10 years old, my dad put up a basketball hoop in the backyard. And I love basketball, so I went out and persisted in pounding and pounding that basketball into that grass below that basket until finally I made a huge bare spot right in the middle of my dad's yard. Now, my dad loved working in the yard. And so his grass was always green. It was always lush except for this one bare spot under that basketball hoop in the backyard. As a matter of fact, I drove by the old home place the other day and that bare spot's still there right in the backyard under where that hoop used to be. In the days following Alexander the Great, the land of Israel also became a bare spot. And for the same reason. Because of the persistent pounding of two nations and their kings. The Seleucids of Syria, north of Israel, and the Ptolemies of Egypt, south of Israel, feuded for a century and a half, 150 years. And the middle ground between these two rival and warring kings was where? It was the land bridge that we call Israel. Daniel 11 records the battles and the intrigue back and forth between these two rival kingdoms and its effect on the nation in between the nation Israel. There are many lessons we can gain from this, but perhaps uh, one of the main morals of the story is try not to get in the middle of two warring parties, okay? <laughs> You'll get pounded. In chapter 11, the kings go back and forth, the kings and their successors. King of the north, king of the south, Seleucid, the Ptolemy, until finally we get to verse 17 when we're told, he, meaning the Seleucid king, Antiochus III, the dad of that sinister fellow we talked about earlier, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or before him. At the time, the Ptolemies in Egypt were courting the help 
of a rival empire from the north by the name of Rome. This Antiochus countered their Roman alliance with some trickery. He arranged a marriage between the southern successor, Ptolemy VI, and his own daughter, who, by the way, was named Cleopatra. Legend has it she looked a lot like Elizabeth Taylor. Antiochus's plan was to plant Cleopatra in the Egyptian court as a mole. What he didn't count on was his daughter, Cleopatra, falling in love with the king of Egypt. It's amazing, this prophecy. And don't miss the obvious. Daniel predicted these details 300 years before they occurred. When this was first written, guys, it wasn't history as we're reading it. It was prophecy, predictions into the future. From verses 21 through 35, the succession of these kings slows down. And the focus becomes Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, as he liked to be called, the little horn we talked about in Daniel 8. Verse 29 tells us of a campaign against Egypt where he was met by ships from Cyprus. The Romans are now defending Egypt. And because of this, Antiochus tucked tail. He returned. He ran back to his home in Syria. But along the way, he vented his frustrations on guess who? On the Jews. And verse 31 tells us that he stopped along the way to shut down the daily sacrifices and to erect the abomination of desolation, the statue of Zeus in the temple of her saint. History tells us that he also outlawed the scripture. He eliminated the Sabbath. Verse 32 records the reaction of the Jews. Antiochus will corrupt some of the Jews, but others were told will be strong and carry out great exploits of fitting description of the Maccabean priests who fought that guerrilla warfare that eventually ousted Antiochus. Under the leadership of these courageous priests, Judas the Hammer, and the other Maccabeans, they gained Israel's independence. And the Maccabeans reigned over Israel for a hundred years before the land occupied by the Romans. All that Daniel predicted occurs historically in old, or, or all he predicts in this chapter here in verse, chapter 11 so far to this point. It occurs between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So during that period of time these events take place. Remember he's prophesying 375 years in advance. From verse 36 until the end of the chapter, the language in general, and certain statements in particular, lead us to believe that Daniel is talking again about more than just Antiochus. He's talking about the future who will mimic his blasphemies, the Antichrist. Verse 35 seems to say that the anti-Semiticism and the Jewish persecution begun by Antiochus will continue until the time of the end or till the last days. Verses 36 and 37 tell us, Then the king shall do according to his own will. 
He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. See, Antiochus tried to force the Jews into worshiping the Greek gods. The Antichrist will go beyond that. He'll demand the world to worship only We're told he shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them. This man is the personification. Verses 40 through 45 seem to me to be the prelude of the battle of war that will end all wars. A war where Jesus will return, destroy the Antichrist and the armies of this world. Verse 40 says this ruler will be attacked by both the king of the south and the king of the north. And again, note the person in view cannot be Antiochus because he was the king of the north. This has to be someone else. I believe it's the Antichrist of the last days. The Antichrist will march his army from Europe into the Middle East. He'll defeat the locals. He'll enter the glorious land, the land of Israel. There he'll set up his palace. We're told in verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury, destroy and annihilate many. The conflict will escalate into a global war. Revelation 19 tells us that the armies of the world will gather to the valley of Megiddo, where there Jesus will destroy his foes, establish his kingdom. Chapter 12 begins. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. He's speaking of the time when the Antichrist will bring his armies into the Middle East, into Israel. It's interesting, whenever the Archangel Michael appears in Scripture. It's always in relation to the nation Israel. And in the last days, he again will come to protect the Jewish people. Notice too, he comes at a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation even to that time. The 70th week of Daniel, or what is called the Great Tribulation, will be a period of unprecedented trouble and violence and all over the world, Jews will be persecuted. The world will be punished. Verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, there's an old spiritual entitled, The Great Getting Up. One morning, one day, earthly bodies that you and I have will be resurrected. The thing is, though, not everyone will get up the same morning. Those who trust in Jesus, we're told, will be part of the first resurrection. Their spirits go to be with Jesus when they die. Their bodies are resurrected at the rapture of the church, whereas those who reject the Lord Jesus, their bodies are resurrected after these judgments and thrown into Verse 3 says that if you want to be a star, a star in God's sky, then meet a person with Jesus. Be a shining star, not just a shooting star. 
You need to turn many to righteousness. Verse 4 tells us, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. I think so much of what Daniel saw, he didn't really understand. How could he? He saw so much into the future. I think God knew that these prophecies would be meaningful only to those who saw the prophecies being fulfilled. And so that's why he said, shut this prophecy up until the time of the end. Here also, Daniel is given two signs of the time of the end. He's told, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Catch those two signs. Those are interesting. Many shall run to and fro. Think about travel today. Think about how mobile our society Think about how quickly we can get around and how much travel we actually do. From Daniel, from his time until the middle of the 1800s, no one ever traveled faster than this boy. Think about that. It's about 2,300 miles. The speed of human movement would be the same. Now think of the changes that have taken place in the last one. I mean, today's rockets travel through space at 24,000 miles per hour. And think of what's happened to our knowledge. Daniel's told that in the time of the end, knowledge will increase. From Noah's time until the mid-1800s, 4,300 years, we're told that the cumulative knowledge of mankind doubled. But over the next 100 years, from 1850 to 1950, doubled again in just one now, here we are in the 21st century, and our collective knowledge is now doubling every two to three years. Today, by just pressing a few buttons on a computer, you can duplicate the life's work of an engineer who lived prior to 1955. It's amazing. Increase in speed and smarts, we're told, is a sign of Jesus' coming. In verse 5, Daniel is visited by angels. They tell him that all these wonders he's seen will occur in a three and a half year period of time. That's the same length of time spoken of in Daniel 9 from the abomination of desolation until the end of the 70th year. Daniel admits in verse 8 that he doesn't understand so much of this. It's still fuzzy. He's having problems putting the pieces together. He's told though again in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed the time of the end. Daniel made the predictions, but it wasn't for him to understand them. The angel lays out two more time periods, though, both starting with the abomination of desolation. One is 1,290 days, the other 1,345 days. They speak of this last three and a half years of great tribulation plus one month in the case of the 1,290 days and plus two and a half months in the case of the 1,345 days. The extra month may be time allotted for judgment. The extra two and a half months may be necessary for cleanup after the Great Tribulation. But that's speculation. There is, though, much in the book of Daniel that is not speculation. Daniel is packed with clear and precise prophecies that alert us to the exciting time in which we live. I believe we are living in the last days. We need to be ready for Jesus' imminent return. 
It reminds me of the man who bought a barometer over the internet. It arrived in the mail. He hung it up on a nice place on the wall of his house. But he noticed it was stuck on hurricane. He shook it. He tinkered with it. He tried to fix it. He kept reading hurricane. Finally, he planned to send it back the next day. He never did because his house was hit with You know, some folks just don't believe the warnings. Let that not be us. There's so much before us. God is alerting us. We are living in exciting times. Just think of it. We might not meet again this week. Jesus Christ can come back this week. This may be our last meeting together. The next meeting we have may be around the throne of God in the old grassy city. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Continue to encourage us, Lord, as we walk through your word. In Jesus' name.